Uh, Today is the third and final week of the message, my best advice on dealing with disappointment. It's also the final week of the My Best Advice series. And again, I want to thank all of those who have preached throughout this series and uh, shared their advice on these various topics. I might also mention to those of you who are visiting with us today for the first time, uh, even though this is part three uh, of a three-week message, you really don't have to have been here the other weeks to kind of track with what's going on. So uh, don't let that uh, uh, distract you or make you feel like you're going to miss out on anything. This really serves as a standalone message uh, in its own right. Uh, To quickly summarize what we've done over the last couple of weeks or so, we've been looking at four biblical principles for responding to disappointment. And two weeks ago, we covered the first one from Philippians chapter 4, and that is that when you're disappointed, uh, one of the things that you need to do, it's really two things, is you need to pray and think on good things. And then last week, we looked at the life of Job, and we used his life as a case study for dealing with disappointment. And we found the second principle, which is this, decide to remain faithful to God no matter what the circumstances of your life are. So commit in advance that you are going to trust God no matter what. There's no turning back. Circumstances don't change anything about our trust in God. We're just committed to trust him no matter what. So this is what we've found to this point. Pray and think on good things. Trust God no matter what. And today we're going to find two more principles for dealing with disappointment by considering the life of a man named Joseph. And then we're going to wrap up with just a few additional encouragement from a couple other passages of Scripture. As with Job last week, many of you are probably familiar with Joseph's story, uh, but many of you may not be that familiar with Joseph's story, and so I'm going to provide a brief overview of the highlights of his uh, story. But if you'd like to read it yourself this week, you can find it in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It's in chapters 37 through 50. So I'm going to hit the highlights And then here in a few minutes, we will get to Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 8, which will serve as our text if you want to go ahead and turn there and hold your place. So here's the crib notes version of Joseph's story. His father was Jacob. So if you know anything about the Bible, you know these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is that Jacob. And he and his brother, Benjamin, uh, were the sons of Jacob uh, that, that Jacob had had with Rachel, who he greatly loved. So Jacob is Joseph's father. He's Benjamin's father. He had them with Rachel, the woman that he greatly loved. Now, all of his other brothers, his 10 other brothers, were born to Leah, who Jacob had tricked, uh, had been tricked into marrying by Leah and Rachel's father, Laban. Now, why the man had two wives is a message for a different Sunday. We're, we're, we're not, we're, we're not going to be able to cover all of that today. Uh, but suffice it to say, for today he did. He had Rachel, who he loved greatly. He had Leah, who he had been tricked in to marrying. And so Joseph was favored by his father. In, in fact, verse uh, chapter 37 of Genesis very directly tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons. And it was obvious to his brothers that this was true. And of course, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate thing. That is, that is not a commendable thing uh, uh, for Jacob there. 
And you can imagine the animosity that this caused among his brothers. And as if all of that wasn't enough of a problem, Joseph had a couple of dreams that he rather unwisely shared with his entire family. In the first dream, he and his brothers were out in the fields and they were binding their sheaves and his sheaf rose and stood upright and all of their sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. And he explained this to them. In his second dream, he dreamed that the sun and the moon and 11 stars were all bowing down to him. 11 was the number of his brothers. And so the implication being the sun, moon, mom and dad, 11 stars, all his brothers, the whole family bowing down to Joseph. And you can imagine that this did not do anything for Joseph's popularity uh, with his brothers. And so their hatred of him intensified. And it got to the point where these brothers did something that is really unthinkable and unjustified, just completely, completely horrible thing for them to do. They sold their brother Joseph into slavery. They tore off of him the special robe that his father had made him. You may be familiar with Joseph and his coat of many colors. And they tore the robe off of him. They ripped it up. They dipped it in animal blood. They took it back to their father and allowed him to conclude that Joseph must have been killed by a wild animal. And they sold him into slavery. Joseph ends up a slave in Egypt. And he's purchased by a man named Potiphar. And Genesis 39 tells us that because the Lord was with Joseph in Potiphar's house, everything that he did there seemed to prosper. And Potiphar recognized this. And so what Potiphar ended up doing is making Joseph this slave in charge of his entire estate. And we're told that because of Joseph, the blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had. Now, we're already like deep into an amazing story here. I, I mean, I want you to think about what's going on. We have been told that the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is giving Joseph success. The Lord is blessing other people because of Joseph. But don't forget that the story started with the Lord allowing Joseph to be sold into slavery and separated from his family. Joseph's difficulty, like Job last week, didn't have anything to do with Joseph being displeasing to God. It was not the discipline of God. Joseph's trouble came to him with God well pleased with him. It's another reminder that it's dangerous business to try to discern whether someone's life is pleasing or displeasing to God by the circumstances of their lives. It's a pay grade that only God occupies. We, we can't figure those things out, and so we really should not play those kinds of games with each other. Not only is Joseph finding success in Potiphar's house, but Scripture tells us that he was a well-built and handsome man, and Potiphar's wife takes notice of him. She becomes inappropriately interested in him. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Potiphar's wife is not a subtle woman. 
And so we're told that she said to Joseph, once she became interested in him, come to bed with me. And that line is ended with an exclamation mark. Joseph refused. He's a good man. He refused and spurned. This wicked woman tells her husband that Joseph tried to force himself on her. The exact opposite of what actually happened. But Potiphar believes his wife and he has Joseph thrown into prison. The king's prison. We're told that once in prison, the Lord granted Joseph favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And eventually the prison warden put Joseph in charge of, quote, all those held in prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Notice the theme emerging. Everywhere he goes, no matter the circumstances, he rises to the top. He's put in charge of everything. May we be these kind of people. The, the warden was so confident in Joseph that we're told he paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. You know, that's how we want to be with our own supervisors. We want to be the kind of people where where they say, you know what, I just don't have to think about anything that that person is overseeing. I just know that it's going to be taken care of. So Joseph is once again finding success. He's operating under the favor of God. But he only got to the prison to find the success by being lied about and thrown into the king's prison by Potiphar. While Joseph is in prison, he has an opportunity to interpret a dream for the king's chief cupbearer. The the chief cupbearer had uh, done something to become displeasing with the king, and he had been thrown into the king's prison. Joseph comes in contact with him. The man has a dream. He comes to Joseph, and Joseph is able to interpret the dream for him. And basically what Joseph tells him is, you are going to get back in the good graces of the king, you're going to be released from prison, and you're going to enter service to the king again. And Joseph said, when all of this comes about, I appeal to you to remember me and put in a good word for me and help me to get released from prison. But once the cupbearer was returned to the king's service, as Joseph said he would, he quickly forgot about Joseph. We're talking about disappointment today. Imagine the disappointment that Joseph has faced just to this point in the story. He's been sold into slavery by his brothers. Things start going well, and then He's lied about and thrown into prison even though he was honorable and only did what was right. And then he helped someone. And all he asked in return is remember me and try to help me get out of prison and he is forgotten about. He's forgotten about for two years. And then two years later, the Egyptian Pharaoh had a dream that none of his wise men could interpret And then the cupbearer finally remembered Joseph. And Joseph was brought before the king, brought before Pharaoh, and he was able to interpret uh, Pharaoh's dreams. And the dreams were warnings of coming famine. And so Joseph gave the interpretation of the dream. He offered some guidance on how to prepare for the famine. 
And as the interpreter of the dreams and the one offering guidance to Pharaoh on what should be done, it eventually led Pharaoh to conclude this and to tell Joseph, quote, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So once again, Joseph rises to the top. It is, it is just an amazing story. Sold into slavery, rises to head the master's household. Thrown into prison, he's put in charge of the entire prison. Forgotten in prison, finally remembered, comes out of prison and ends up second in command in all of Egypt. It's an amazing story. On your outline, if you're uh, gonna try to follow along there, I'm going to throw you a curveball. We're going to go with D first, and then we'll come back to C. You've got to pay attention around here, I'll tell you. Uh, so here is the fill in the blank for D. Uh, it starts with a reemphasis of last week, and then it adds something new. So fill in the blank, remain faithful and keep working. Remain faithful and keep working. Have you noticed as I shared the story of Joseph that every step of the way, no matter the difficulty, no matter the disappointment, no matter the injustice that he's experienced, at every step, Joseph is found faithfully serving wherever he is. He's working diligently no matter the setbacks that have come his way. This is a commendable, commendable man. When we face disappointment, in addition to praying and thinking on good things, in addition to committing to trust God no matter what, we have to make sure that we not only remain faithful, but that we keep working. You know, disappointment has a way of tempting us to stop working. Disappointment tempts us to quit. We're looking for a job and can't seem to find one, no matter how hard we, we search. Disappointment can be so profound that we stop working, uh, stop looking. You, you know, that's actually uh, been a pretty major story in the news the last five, six years or so. The job market has been so bad that people just opt out, just stop looking. And then miraculously, the unemployment rates look better because those people aren't counted. It's an amazing thing. So many people have just dropped out of the workforce. They've been so discouraged, they've just quit. No matter how hard we work, how good of work we do, we always get passed over for a promotion. This can tempt us to stop trying, to just hit cruise control, say, why should I go over and above what's required? Everybody else is just kind of coasting and they're doing okay. Some of the people who coast the most are getting promoted. Why should I bother to go over and above? Tempted to quit. Stop doing as good as we do. We try to start a ministry. Nobody steps up to help. We don't see it take off like we hoped. It doesn't yield the fruit that we hoped. Can tempt a person to, to just stop trying, to stop working, to just quit at ministry. We read the Bible, pray, go to church, and everything in life just seems to get more difficult. You know, this is why Jesus told people, rather than saying, hey, if you follow me, everything's going to be great. 
Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up a cross and follow me. Everybody remember Jesus said that? See, Jesus wasn't like a lot of television preachers. Jesus knew that following him wasn't going to mean that life was going to be wonderful all the time. In fact, he knew that to follow him faithfully was often going to mean your life was going to get more difficult. So we pray, we read our Bibles, we go to church, everything seems to get more difficult and our disappointment can be so profound that we're tempted to just quit trying. I can't imagine that I'm unusual in this. When I'm disappointed, at least to a very significant extent, I face a serious temptation to respond with these two words, forget it. Just forget it. Not doing that anymore. Not wasting my time trying to beat that dead horse anymore. You know, disappointment, I think I mentioned this a week or two ago, it'll convince us of things that are not true. And it will tempt us to think the most unhelpful things are the only answer that's available to us. The initial reaction to disappointment that most people have is the desire to quit, to give up, to just stop trying. And that is exactly the wrong thing to do when we face disappointment. It is the wrong answer to our trouble. And so from Joseph, we learn that no matter how we might feel, the right response to disappointment is to just keep being faithful and to just keep working at whatever is in front of us to do. No job yet? Keep looking. No promotion? Keep serving well. Eventually the cupbearer might remember you. Ministry not going as you hoped? Welcome to the club. Have you noticed that anything that involves people usually doesn't go the way you hoped it would? Has anybody noticed that or am I just turning cynical? Just keep being faithful. Keep working at it, at least until God reveals his next assignment. Being faithful to read your Bible, pray, be involved in the life of the church and not seeing it pay off in the way that you hoped. Just keep being faithful. Keep working at your relationship with God and others. You see, disappointment never gives us permission to do the wrong thing. And so our response to disappointment should be to continue to do the right things, to remain faithful, to continue to work faithfully at the work of our hands. This is pleasing to God. So when we're disappointed... We need to pray and think on good things. Trust God no matter what. Keep working at whatever God has provided for us to do, never giving up, refusing to quit. And now I want us to see why it was that Joseph was able to live such a commendable life even when the circumstances for him were truly awful. And by the way, if I could only say one thing on this topic of dealing with disappointment, and I know I've said a lot more than one thing, but if I could only say one thing, if I could have only offered you one principle on how to deal with disappointment, what we're going to see now would be it. So Joseph rises to second in command in all of Egypt. 
He helps Egypt over seven years prepare for the seven years of famine that are going to come upon the world. And then the famine arrives and Egypt is prepared, but the nations around them are unprepared. And so the other people of the world begin turning to Egypt for help to survive. Joseph's family, the brothers who sold him into slavery, they're affected by the famine. And they learn that there is food in Egypt. And so the family sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt to try to secure food that's going to enable the family to survive. And when the brothers come to Egypt, they have to come in front of Joseph to buy food. Joseph immediately recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph proves for us again that even exemplary men are not perfect men. Because Joseph does what you might call putting his brothers through the ringer. Is that too old of a phrase for everybody to connect with? Do we, do we know what that means? Putting them through the ringer. He begins by speaking harshly to them and treating them suspiciously. He accuses them of being spies and detains them for three days. He he determines to hold one of them prisoner until they return to their home and bring back their youngest brother, the only one who wasn't there, and his full brother, Benjamin. They do this. They bring Benjamin back and They get more food on their return visit with Benjamin. And then when they leave again, Joseph has his officials place his cup in Benjamin's sack of food. And as soon as they head out, he sends his soldiers after them. They they stop them. They go through their stuff. They find this gold cup and they accuse Joseph's brothers of returning his kindness of food by stealing from him. He determines that because... Benjamin is the thief. Benjamin is going to be unable to return home with them and he's going to have to stay in Egypt. Through all of this, they still fail to recognize him. But this thing about Benjamin is just a step too far. And so his brother Judah finally summons the courage to resist, to appeal against what Joseph is saying. And he explains to Joseph that Benjamin is the only remaining son that their father had with Rachel. And he explains to Joseph that their father simply cannot bear losing Benjamin after having lost the other brother, the other son. And at this point, Joseph cannot restrain himself any longer. And here's what Genesis 45.1 tells us. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Try to imagine the release of emotion that Joseph is having in this moment. The years of separation that he's endured, the years of wondering how his brothers could have done this to him, how how could their hatred have been so intense to do this to their brother? 
the years of difficulty, the years of injustice, the years of loneliness. I mean, think of how lonely Joseph's life would have been. And it all just explodes in this moment into uncontrollable weeping. We continue in chapter 45, verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Imagine how they must have felt. The one that they sold into slavery, the one that they committed this great injustice against is now the most powerful man in the known world. Second only to Pharaoh himself. With a simple command, he can require their lives. Maybe that was too gentle. I'll say it this way. With a simple command, he can have them killed. And they know he'd be justified to do so. So great was the evil that they did against him and against his father and against his mother. They remember what they did. They sent him into a life of slavery and loneliness and anguish. They deprived him of his father's love, deprived him of his mother's love, deprived his mother and father of his love. And so they are terrified. And here's what Joseph, who holds their lives in his hands, says to them in verse four, and this is our text. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he repeated, I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. Now listen carefully. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. How could Joseph say to the men who sold him into slavery, don't be angry with yourselves, God sent me ahead of you. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. It's an incredible statement. Don't be angry with yourselves for sending me here. It wasn't you who sent me here. They sent him there. His brothers sent him to Egypt, and he acknowledges they did. Don't be angry with yourselves for sending me here. Oh, but it wasn't you who sent me here. God did it. The way that Joseph could say that, the way he could forgive his brothers, the way he could remain faithful and keep working hard through injustice after injustice is this, Joseph believed in the sovereignty of God. Joseph did not believe like 
too many people do, including probably too many of us in this room, that God somehow just spun the world into existence and then went and took a nap and he'll continue napping until the end of time when he will rouse himself from slumber and do something we're not sure what. He didn't see things that way. Joseph believed that everything in life was under the authority of God. That the good things and the bad things were all being orchestrated by God to accomplish his purposes, his will in the earth, and in the lives of those who belong to him. Joseph believed that God is always in control, that nothing ever escapes the control of God, even if from a human perspective, we cannot figure out what in the world God is doing. And this is the fourth biblical principle for responding to disappointment. You can respond to disappointment well when you believe and embrace the sovereignty of God. Imagine Joseph at each event in his story and how he would have had to feel, how you and I would feel in those same circumstances. He's sold into slavery and taken to Egypt. Why, God? This doesn't make any sense. Everybody was supposed to be bowing down. The the sheaves bowed down. The the sun, moon, and the stars bowed down. Nobody's bowing down. I'm a slave. What's up with this, God? Rise to a place of importance, but then lied about and thrown into the king's prison. Why, God? This doesn't make any sense. They're back in Potiphar's house. It, you know, it looked like, like, like things were starting to go well. Maybe somehow I could see you were going to turn something good out of that. But, but now I'm back in prison. Why, God? This doesn't make any sense. What could this possibly accomplish? Promised to be remembered, but then forgotten until such a time as the king himself needed a dream interpreted. Why, God? Why all the years of being forgotten? Why all the years of languishing in prison because somebody wasn't grateful enough, thankful enough for my help to return the favor. At each step of his journey, viewed in isolation, none of it makes a lot of sense. But when you can look back at the story, you can see what God was up to. You see, to preserve Joseph's family, a remnant on the earth, God needed Joseph in Egypt to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and to get elevated to number two in command in all of Egypt. And so Joseph has to get from his homeland to Egypt. He's got to be there. God's will requires him in Egypt. And so his brothers sell him to slave traders who take him to Egypt. It looks like everything's out of control. But actually what's happening is God is setting his plan in motion. Now he's in Egypt. But that doesn't get him to Pharaoh. To get to Pharaoh, he's got to come closer in proximity to Pharaoh than just being in Egypt. And so Potiphar has him thrown into the king's prison. And the natural view of things. It's like, okay, this is a huge setback. But what God is doing is getting him closer to Pharaoh. God's advancing his plan. 
But not everyone in the king's prison gets an audience with the king. Many of them instead get an audience with the king because they're killed. So God's got to get him in front of Pharaoh. So the cupbearer has to forget about Joseph. Until Pharaoh has a need that will cause Pharaoh to be really attentive to Joseph. From a human perspective, none of this difficulty made any sense. But it all had a purpose that God understood. I'm getting Joseph to Pharaoh and then I'm putting him in charge of the whole place. And Joseph, I have no doubt about this because of how he reacted at every step of the way, at every setback. I believe that all through the story, Joseph believed that God was in control. But then when he sees his brothers in front of him, it all came into focus. He he finally saw what God had been up to Before, he trusted it by faith. Now, he sees it. And so he's able to completely let his brothers off the hook. And he's able to say, you did not send me here. God sent me here. On the surface, it's all on his brothers. But not really. God sent him there. If we're going to respond to difficulty, disappointment, significant, profound disappointments in life, if we're going to do that in a God-pleasing and God-honoring way, we have to embrace the sovereignty of God. We have to truly believe that God is in control. It's only when we believe that God is involved in our lives, only when we believe that God is ultimately in control, Only when we believe that both in the good times and the bad times, God is at work towards something that is for our benefit either now or in eternity. It's only then that we're going to be able to endure the kind of difficulty and heartache that life brings us without allowing disappointment to turn us into bitter, disillusioned people. You know how easy it is to become bitter? how easy it is to become a disillusioned person. We can only avoid that if we can get to the place where we truly trust in the sovereignty of God. We respond to disappointment in a God-honoring way and in a way that is to our benefit by believing that God is in control even when from our perspective there is absolutely zero evidence that he is. So we respond to disappointment by praying and thinking on good things, by choosing to trust God no matter what, by remaining faithful and continuing to work hard at what God has put in front of us to do, and by believing in the sovereignty of God. He is in control, and he is working for our good even when we don't understand how that could possibly be true. I don't have the time today to say a whole lot about that final section that's on your outline, 
but I do want to give you the answers to the fill in the blanks. And uh, there are a few more encouragements to be had there, I think, on this topic of disappointment. So according to Psalm 35, this is your next fill in the blank, we are promised that uh, that weeping eventually gives way to joy. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may last for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So if you're in a season of disappointment, that's a that's a verse for your refrigerator. That's a uh, that's a verse to put on the dashboard of your car uh, and read it when you're stopped. That is a uh, that is a verse to commit to memory. Uh, weeping may last for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. It is a promise. It is a promise from God that weeping doesn't last forever. My last a long time does not last forever. It eventually gives way to rejoicing. And then according to Isaiah 40, 28 through 31, God renews the strength of the weary. Here's what those verses say. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. If you think about Joseph's life, he, he, he really is the proof of the truthfulness of these verses. He, he, he really is. You can see this in his story playing itself out. And then here's the final fill in the blank for you. It comes from Philippians 4.13. It tells us that we can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, you know, I'm realizing in this moment, I probably haven't said this in a while, uh, but historically I've tried to occasionally remind us as we approach the scriptures that all meaning is context dependent. And you can't just pick a verse out of the Bible separated from the context it's set in and really understand what's going on. It's like that with any kind of communication. If you do that, you can make the Bible say a whole lot of things that it doesn't say. And my go-to verse for demonstrating this is this Philippians 4.13. Because many of you have probably heard this preached in a way that basically says, you know, set your mind to whatever you want to accomplish And you can achieve it because you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. That's actually not what the verse means at all. If you read the verse in its context, what it's saying is you're going to have times where life is going good and you're going to have times where life uh, really isn't going good. And you can get through both of those times through Christ who gives you strength. You can do all things. You can make it through the good times. You can make it through the bad times through Christ who gives you strength. So there's a lot of application for what we've been talking about here with disappointment. Think of the life of Joseph. When preferred by his father and wearing a coat of many colors or being carried away into slavery by a bunch of Ishmaelites, he could do all things through the strength that God provided him. Whether the head of Potiphar's house or once again facing disappointment sitting in prison, I can do all things through God who gives me strength. Bring it down to where we all live. Whether I get the promotion or I face the disappointment of being passed over again for the promotion, whether I get the job that I hope to get, or once again, I'm not the one selected, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whether the devotions that I've been so faithful to 
feel like they are full of God's presence, or if I go through my daily devotions and it just feels like the heavens are, you know, like blocked off to me and I I can't feel God, I can do both things. I can make it through both seasons of life, through Christ who gives me strength. Whether my ministry is fruitful or I face the disappointment of pouring everything I have into something and not seeing it yield any fruit. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whether I have plenty of money or I have no money at all, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whether I'm heading Potiphar's house, I'm in prison. On and on we can go with examples. If I'm never sick, or I'm sick yet again, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can face disappointment if I pray and remember the good things. If I trust God no matter what, if I keep working at what God has put in front of me to do, and if I embrace and truly believe in the sovereignty of God. I can do all of these things through Christ who gives me strength. And may this be true for every single one of us here today. These are biblical principles, biblical tools for responding to disappointment in God-honoring ways. And these things can be incredibly helpful to us if we'll put them into practice, not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And so may each and every one of us here today put these things into practice and may we glorify God even when disappointment visits our lives. Why don't you stand?